Sopeka, and it is truly a joy to be with you all this morning. I oversee community life and discipleship here at Zanza Fellowship. So I'll say, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I, I have the unique privilege of getting to partner with each and every one of you as you seek to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. It's so good. So good to be with you this morning. So let me address the elephant in the room. Why am I up here and where is Pastor Drew? So this morning, our beloved teaching pastor, Drew Hunter, is not here with us. He's actually preaching at Bethel Baptist Church in Delaware. And he is doing this because their pastor, Chris McGarvey, is a dear friend of his. And Pastor Chris is celebrating a decade of ministry in that church. So Drew is preaching a message to honor and commend and appreciate Chris and encourage that church family in Delaware. So, unfortunately, time travel and cloning do not yet exist. So here I am before you, and I have the joy of preaching God's Word to you this morning. So, let me remind you that here at Zionsville Fellowship, we typically preach expositional sermons. So this means that we work through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We aim to take the main point of the passage and have it be the main point of our message. So we've been working through the book of Ephesians little by little these several past several weeks. And today, we're going to pause and look at the book at, as a whole. We're going to take a macro view of Ephesians. And we're going to work through Ephesians 1 through 6 all together in you know, 45 minutes. And it will be wonderful. But we will have an eye towards something in particular. We will see that discipleship is impossible without the church. This is the subterranean reality flowing underneath and within and throughout the book of Ephesians. So with that in mind, I want to read a portion of Ephesians together that highlights this reality. So grab your Ephesians booklet if you have it. Grab your Bible. There's Bibles in the seat or pew underneath in front of you. And uh, turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look at verses 14 through 21 together. So turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And I ask you to follow along with me as I read from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to powerfully use his word in our hearts this morning. Father, if your spirit does not come and cause us to delight in these truths from your word this morning, then my efforts are useless. So, Father, encourage us, challenge us, 
Strengthen us from your word this morning. You know our hearts. You know our burdens. You know our joys. You know our sorrows. So come, speak words of life and hope to us this morning. Show us Christ. Show us the majesty and beauty of Christ's body, the church. Empower us by your spirit for these things. Change us, stir us, help us, we ask. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Discipleship is impossible without without the church. That's a good answer. Well done. You're listening so far. But what would you expect me to say? You probably would expect me to say something like, discipleship is impossible without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, without the Bible, but the church. Why the church? This is strange. But when we look at Ephesians as a whole, we will see this reality. Our individualistic notion of discipleship will crumble. For Paul, discipleship happens best in the context of the church, not the building, not the institution, the people, you, me, the church. We grow as disciples because of these relationships with the church, with one another. Discipleship demands partnership. Without the church, discipleship is impossible. Now, it's impossible for us to be disciples who make disciples without the church. Let me give you 10 reasons, 10 reasons from Ephesians 1 through 6. Without the church, we miss the magnitude of God's blessing. Without the church, we miss the transformative power of the gospel. Without the church, we miss the manifold wisdom of God, and we miss the fullness of God's overflowing love. Without the church, we miss the gifts given by God for our growth. Without the church, we miss the growth provided by others. Without the church, we miss opportunities to tangibly express our faith to one another. Without the church, we miss the beauty of what marriage pictures. Without the church, we miss the offensive and defensive weapons God has given us for spiritual warfare. And without the church, we miss countless opportunities for personal encouragement and comfort. So before we look at these 10 reasons, we have to make sure we know what this buzzword means, or at least these buzzwords, discipleship and the church. We need to be crystal clear on these things. So several things might come to mind when you hear the word discipleship, but biblically speaking, discipleship always involves at least these sort of three critical elements. It'll involve transformation, it will involve replication, and it will involve multiplication. So discipleship always includes those three categories. In other words, discipleship is happening and happens when transformation happens, when people grow spiritually, when people become more and more like Christ, when people deepen in their enjoyment of God and God's word and God's people, when God gives a human heart change, change that results in renewed thoughts, renewed feelings, renewed life actions. Now, this transformation does not happen in a vacuum, but in the context of relationship with one another. So discipleship happens through the process, what I call replication. It's where life on life happens and there's rubbing off on influencing one another. So you might observe someone's life. 
I personally have observed many of your lives in different ways and benefited in countless ways. And as you observe someone live their life, you can't help but to imitate them, especially when you are close to someone and know someone. Similar phrases, mannerisms, just can't, you can't help but imitate one another. But the process of replication ultimately leads you to personalize what is someone else's quirks and default ways of speaking about things or doing things, and you make it your own. So when I preach, I've been influenced by John Piper. And if you see a little bit of this or this hand motion, it's probably because he was influential in my life because I've observed him, I've imitated him in mannerisms and hopefully more other ways than that, but at least that. And then I've personalized it and made it my own. This is replication. But if we stop here... This falls short of how the Bible speaks about discipleship. There must be multiplication. For example, Paul invests in Timothy. That is discipleship. Timothy was transformed as he observed and imitated and personalized Paul's example. But it falls short of discipleship unless Timothy then goes and invests in others. Multiplication must be a part of our discipleship efforts. It always includes transformation, replication, and multiplication. That is a whole sermon on discipleship in three minutes. Well done. All right, second, the church. What do we mean when we say the church? Well, we can speak about the church in several ways. The Bible does so. And we even even sang about the church in in different ways and spoke about the church this morning in different ways. So if you're not paying close attention, you might miss it. We, We can speak of the church universal, the universal church with a capital C. This is all of Christians throughout all of history, the universal church. The church, that's the church. We can speak about the church as an institution. So this is the formal structures associated with local churches or groups of local churches. You might speak about a denomination or maybe more narrowly about church governance, how a church is structured with its leadership. The church. We can speak about the local church family. That is the group of Christians who are united by their commitment to a local church in a geographic context together. And therefore, those Christians are relationally connected to one another. This is often how I will speak about the church this morning. So when you hear me say the church, hear you and me and you and me and you and you and you. Hear hear we, us, the people in this room, the church. Okay? Fair enough? So let's look at the book of Ephesians, and we will see together how discipleship is impossible without the church. So turn with me to chapter 1. Reason 1, discipleship is impossible without the church. Chapter 1 makes this point crystal clear. Without the church, we miss the magnitude of God's blessing. I trust many of us have been freshly encouraged by our series in Ephesians. We saw there were five spiritual blessings, and each of those blessings apply to us individually. But when I read through these blessings from chapter 1, Pay careful attention to whom Paul is speaking. To whom do these five blessings apply? Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption, 
as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, you all also, when you all heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you all believed in him, you all were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God chose me. is true. But it says God chose us. God predestined us for adoption. We have redemption. God's lavished his grace upon us. We have an inheritance. We were sealed with the Spirit. Without considering the other's reference in this passage, we miss the magnitude of God's grace. Have you personally tasted the sweetness of these blessings? Have you come to the Niagara Falls of his grace with your cup in, his hand, in your hand? And have you found comfort and peace from God's lavish gr- grace? Do you marvel that God would love you so? Choose you, adopt you, redeem you. All of this knowing the depth of your own sinfulness? If so, praise God. But prepare to marvel even more. God's promises don't apply just to you. Turn to your right. No, physically, turn to your right. Okay? God's promises apply to them. Turn to your left. God's promises apply to them. God's promises apply to everyone here who trusts in Christ with as much depth, as much richness and sweetness as they do for you. Let's marvel that God has mercy on us individually. Yes, God has mercy on me. But marvel more with me that God has mercy on me and you. This section on you, on you, on you, on all of us. And without the church, without you and me, we miss the magnitude of this blessing. But when we have eyes to see the church, you and me, We see God's blessing as it's intended in its fullness. And that should cause us to worship. That should change us and transform us. Amen? The second reason the discipleship is impossible without the church is that without the church, we miss the transformative power of the gospel. How do we miss this? How do we miss this transformative power without the church? We miss countless opportunities to give thanks. Look now at Ephesians 1, verse 15. Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you all, for you plural, remembering each of you, all of you, you all in my prayers. Paul paid careful attention to listen to and watch for the trans 
transformative power of the gospel in the church, in the hearts of other Christians. He heard about the Ephesian Christians, their love for Christ, their faith for Christ, their love in one another, their their love for the church as a whole, the universal church. And Paul gave thanks to God on their behalf. So like Paul, we must grow in diligently watching one another. We must see the ways each of us are forging greater faith in Christ. We must see the ways each of us deepen in our expressions of love for God and love for one another. And we can give thanks to God when we see this because without the church, we miss so much. Now where else might we see the transformative power of the gospel or miss the transformative power of the gospel when we miss the breathtaking breadth and scope of Ephesians 2. Last week, we were all personally confronted by the gravity of our spiritual state apart from Christ, dead. Apart from Christ, I am dead. You personally are dead, totally dead. You were hopefully personally comforted By the miracle of God's free grace, God breathes spiritual life into us individually because of his grace and his grace alone. He did that in Fred's life and he's done that in ours. But listen again to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, with the recognition that Paul speaks these words not just to you individually, but to us collectively. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you, plural, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you all have been saved. Does that have a different tone to you? If we don't have the church in mind when we read Paul's words here, we miss out on the breathtaking scope of this promise. I was dead. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead. We were all dead. But God, in his lavish grace, has given me life. He has made you alive, and you alive, and you alive. He has made us alive. This insight does not come from particularly difficult or complex theological wrestlings. We just noticed that the the, the verbs here are plural, (laughs) all right? But it drastically changes the default automatic perspective so many of us bring to the Bible. In part, we are radically shaped by the individualistic culture here in America. We are inevitably influenced and shaped and even pre-programmed to read the Bible individualistically. We instinctively ask ourselves, what does this truth do for me? What does this mean for me? How does this text apply to me and my life? But we must do the mental labor of 
putting on a different set of glasses. And we need to ask ourselves, when we look at the text, what does this mean for us? What is Paul saying to us, the church, you and me? We are a body. We are connected as one. One pastor puts it this way. Our radical overemphasis on a personal relationship with God is an American and not a biblical theological construction. What we find in the Bible, rather, is a God who seems at least as concerned with his group, me in relationship with my brothers and sisters, the church, as he is interested with the individual, me personally. So consider the different songs we sang this morning. Larry and I worked together to ensure that we would sing songs that capture both of these realities. My Savior's love. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song, my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. He took my sins, my sorrows, he made them his very own. It is good and right to celebrate that reality. Amen? But look at the next song. Holy is the Lord. We stand and lift up our hands, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship him now. How great, how awesome is he. Together we sing. Everyone sing. Holy is the Lord, God Almighty. That's the truth. Amen? Next song. Well, we also sang, Jesus, I my cross have taken. We sang, all I have is Christ. But we ended before fellowship time with, oh, for a thousand tongues. In this song, each verse changes perspective. So first it begins with, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace in my life. But the next verse says, Jesus is the name that charms our fears, that bids our collective sorrow cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. The next verse again as a group, before the throne will sing the song with saints from every age, church universal, you and me, with thousands times 10,000 strongs, we'll praise his holy name collectively. And then a thousand years we'll, we'll be as one, when face to face I see the splendid beauty of the Son, the one who died for me. Do you see that now? Is it not just obvious to you? It better be. Hopefully it is. If not, we're working on it, okay? We're working on it. We're working on it. I got time still. All this is to say that without the church, we miss the transformative power of the gospel in others beyond ourselves. We miss out on seeing and savoring so much of God's work because God doesn't just work in my heart. He works in each of your hearts as well. So why is discipleship impossible without the church? Because we see so much more of the transformative power of the gospel when we look outside of ourselves and we see it in someone else. Why else is discipleship impossible without the church? Reason three, because without the church, we miss the manifold wisdom of God. Look with me at Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. I'll actually just read verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Really simple statement. But we miss the manifold wisdom of God if we think of it individually. 
This is through all of us together. This is through the church, through you and me. If you have a misunderstanding of who the church is or why the church exists, you will have an underappreciation of the manifold wisdom of God. You miss out on the very way God intends to display and communicate and reveal his grace to the unseen spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So does your life individually display the manifold wisdom of God? Absolutely, yes, yes. As long as God's grace is at work in you and through you, absolutely. But your life displays the manifold wisdom of God precisely because you are but a small piece, a small part of the church as a whole. You are but a part of the church, the body of Christ. Frankly, we miss out on seeing the manifold, the manifold wisdom of God if we focus solely or primarily on God's grace to us as individuals. We need God to get our eyes, to help us get our eyes off of ourselves and to look for the ways his grace is at work in each of us collectively. In this way, discipleship is impossible without the church. We miss too much of the manifold wisdom of God without the church. Why else is discipleship impossible without the church? Reason four, because the church, without the church, we miss the fullness of God's overflowing love. Follow along with me as I look at Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. We, we read this together before I, I began preaching. Verse 14 in chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you all to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in all of your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in all of your hearts through faith, that you all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints, with the church, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ for you all that surpasses knowledge, that you all may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In Paul's prayer, he does not merely ask for you to personally grasp the height and depth and breadth of God's love for you. That's not what he prays for. It's not. Look at the text. Verse 18, that God, that you may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints, together with all other believers, the church, for us to grasp the love that Christ has for us, the church. He wants us to know that God loves us individually, yes, but collectively, he wants us to know that he shares the same depth of love that you personally experience and more for every single Christian. Quantify God's love for you for a moment and then take that and let's do some simple addition. God's love for you plus God's love for the person sitting next to you plus God's love for the person sitting next to you and so on and so forth. Does that change how you think about God's love at all? It should. It should. Titus 2 speaks in a similar way about this. Jesus gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people, a collective people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Without the church, we miss the fullness of God's overflowing love. Without the church, we stand at the Niagara Falls of God's grace with our cup by ourselves. We can marvel at the lavish love of God for us alone. But let's tweak that image. Now, we are right to see and we are right to savor the overwhelming and unlimited provision of God's mercy for us individually through Christ's death on the cross. But Paul prays here that we would stand at the Niagara Falls of God's grace in delight in God and look to our right and look to our left and see peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who are reaching out in faith, receiving grace that is bountiful beyond every single Christian who begs out for mercy. Amen? Musician and author Andrew Peterson has a beautiful song called, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? Some of you may know it. Throughout the song, he sings in partnership with the audience. He first asks the audience a question, and he beckons them to respond. Can you... He says, does the Father truly love me? And the crowd responds, he does. Does the Spirit move in me? And does Jesus, our Messiah, forever hold me in his arms? Does our God intend to dwell again with me? He does. Now, those would be great lyrics if those were actually the lyrics. But this is what he actually sings. Does the Father truly love us? Does the Spirit move among us? Does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? And does our God intend to dwell again with us? Can you see the significance and the impact of the difference? If not by now, you've got a little bit more time, all right? Why else is discipleship impossible without the church? Without the church, we miss the gifts given by God for our growth. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 14. Keep those same theological lenses on and follow along as I read from this text. Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. And Jesus has given a gift to his people collectively. He has supplied his people 
with everything necessary to foster our collective growth. He has given us the gift of apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And specifically, Jesus has given this local church, this church family, Zionsville Fellowship, the gift of godly church leaders, elders, and deacons and pastoral staff members to equip you all for the work of the ministry, to help build each other up. So when I stand before you every, every single time and I say, I have the unique privilege of partnering with each and every one of you to grow as disciples who make disciples, I mean it. My job is to equip you to do the work. I got to just kind of sit back while you work. It's great. So without the church, without the leaders of a local church, discipleship is impossible So if you are not meaningfully engaged in the life of this church family, then you miss out on countless benefits, benefits purchased by Christ, by his blood. This means that Pastor Drew and all of our elders are blood-bought gifts from Christ for our good, and God calls us to collectively grow and benefit from their leadership. What a gift. In this way, Discipleship is impossible without the church. Reason six, without the church, we miss the building up provided by others. So continuing after verse 14 here in chapter four, Paul contrasts the idea of being tossed to and fro like a child by false doctrine. And he says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole church body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow such that it builds itself up in love. We collectively must grow up into Christ because he is the head of the church. He is our head. We are collectively but the body. And because we're a body, we are joined together. We are connective, intertwined. As a body, our different body parts must function properly. We hurt when part of our body hurts. When our body parts function rightly, we can grow. We are built up in love, Paul says. But this means that without the church, without the church body, without each other, without the different parts functioning rightly, we miss one of the very ways God intends for us to grow. So without the church, discipleship is impossible. J.I. Packer puts it this way, we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, as an optional addition to the exercises of our private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with him is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. We need each other to grow. I need you and you need me. Without the church, without one another, discipleship is impossible. Reason seven, Without the church, we miss opportunities to tangibly express our faith to one another. I won't read the entirety of Ephesians 4, uh, verse 17 through the end of chapter 5, but note this. 
orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy. Fancy words that mean that right doctrine must lead to right living. And right living does not only have to do with what we do as individuals. That is how we think individually or uh, feel individually or act individually. It matters how we interact as we intertwine relationally with one another. Francis Schaeffer spoke about the early church in this very way. He said, One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. A community the world would see. By the grace of God, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and for the reality of its community. Our churches have so often only been preaching points with little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. What a great reminder from Francis Schaeffer. Time and time again, Paul calls the Ephesian Christians to live such a beautiful life. Ephesians 4 Verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. Later in the passage, verses 31 and 32, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from each one of you, from you all, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. We refer to these kind of commands as the one another's of Scripture. Speak truthfully with one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Without the church, however, you can't do that. With whom can we speak lovingly and truthfully and graciously if we aren't in relationship with one another? another. So in this way, without the church, we miss out on countless opportunities to tangibly express our faith to one another. Reason number eight, without the church, we miss the beauty of what marriage pictures. Paul famously reveals in chapter five that the marriage union of a husband and a wife serves as a picture of the marriage union between Christ and the church, the church universal. So much can be said, and so much will be said once, once Pastor Drew gets to chapter 5 in the next coming months, perhaps. Um, so much can be said about the dynamics of these relationships. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus didn't just die for us individually. He died for the church. So what does a husband's love look like? It looks like Christ's love for the church collectively. It's deeper and wider and sweeter than you thought. So I'll be brief. For now, notice how much of the beauty we miss of the picture of marriage if we don't get the relationship between Christ and his church. Let that sink in. If you don't consider the way Christ loves his church collectively, you can't rightly understand much of anything about this metaphor. 
Okay, that's maybe an overstatement, and Pastor Drew would nuance it a bit. But you can't understand much about marriage if you don't understand Christ and his love for the church. The point remains, discipleship in the context of marriage relationships is impossible without the church. Reason nine, that discipleship's impossible without the church. Without the church, we miss the offensive and defensive weapons given for spiritual warfare. So just take a guess for a second in your mind. If you were to put on this theological lens with Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, guess what's going to magically happen? All the verbs are going to be plural. Wow, what a crazy insight. It's not that crazy. But by now you should begin to instinctively recognize the collective nature of Paul's commands here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. So be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God that you, plural, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Paul does not want us to think of ourselves as a bunch of different Avenger superheroes who are independently waging private warfare on our sin and on Satan. No, we must view ourselves as squads, groups of Christians waging war in the trenches of life together. Squads of believers, groups of believers that band together to form, in military terms, platoons and companies and brigades and divisions. Less James Bond, more Normandy Beach. Okay, when you read Ephesians 6, you aren't James Bond putting on your special spy warfare outfit. It is collectively the church doing it together. Without the church, we miss the offensive and defensive weapons given to us to fight spiritual warfare together. We must put on our armor together. We must wrestle against evil forces together. Put on the belt of truth together. Put on the breastplate of righteousness together. Shield of faith together. The sword of the spirit together. We need each other to help each other fight in this spiritual warfare that is invisible. So let's come now to the 10th and final reason discipleship is impossible without the church. Reason 10, without the church, we miss opportunities for personal comfort and encouragement. Paul concludes his letter by saying this in verses 21 through 24. He says this, so that you also, so that all of the Christians in Ephesus, so that you all may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Paul is in prison when he writes this. Paul says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that all of you may know how we are doing, and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul is jealous to personally send Tychicus to be with his Christian brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He wants Tychicus to tell them everything, how he is personally doing his highs and lows while in prison, how Tychicus is doing his highs and lows as a disciple of Jesus, and the Christians that Paul is interacting with, how we are doing, all so that their hearts might be collectively encouraged. Like Paul, we need brothers and sisters to know how we are actually doing, what we are actually doing. We need meaningful friendships. If you want to grow as a disciple who makes disciples, you need people. You need people in your life. We need the church. We need one another. 
If you're not in meaningful relationship with other Christians, you're asking for trouble. Or at the, at the very least, you miss out on so much. You've seen that much this morning. So let's be done. Be done with the idea that anyone can flourish spiritually without meaningfully engaging in the life of a local church family. God gives us means to grow, and we desperately need to recapture a sense of the wonder of the local church in its role in our spiritual vitality. I am personally a man of extremes. If you know me well, I tend to have really high highs and really low lows. I crash really hard, and I find myself in really dry spells. You may not experience highs and lows to the same extreme as me, but I know personally that God has used the close relationships in my life to keep me, to hold me, to sustain me, to strengthen me and encourage me. I need believers in my life. So if you are a Christian, you need the church. And if you are not yet a Christian, you're missing out. Do you know the magnitude of God's blessings? Do you want to know the transformative power of the gospel or the manifold wisdom of God or the fullness of God's overflowing love or the beauty of marriage and what it pictures? Look to Christ. His heart is kind. He loves you individually and he loves us collectively. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your love for us, that you work in us and through us all. We marvel that Christ died for us, for your body, as you stir our hearts this morning. Change us. Deepen our love for you and for one another as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you stand? So I'm going to ask now those same questions you heard earlier from Andrew Peterson's song. And I want you to respond with, he does. Does the Father truly love us? Yes. Does the Spirit move among us? Yes. Does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? Yes. And does our God intend to dwell again with us? Yes. By God's Holy Spirit, may the Father give you strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of his love, the love of his son Jesus for you individually and for us collectively. Go in peace.